Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Secession Crisis. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, the election of 1860. There were four candidates in the election of 1860. Abraham Lincoln represented the Republicans and was committed to halting the expansion of slavery, but promised that he had, quote, no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it already exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. End quote. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party had split over slavery at their national convention in Charleston, South Carolina. The convention reconvened in Baltimore and selected a northern and southern Democratic candidate, so there were truly no national parties left. Stephen Douglas represented the Northern Democrats, and the sitting vice president, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky, represented the Southern Democrats. Note that the Southern Democrats demanded that the federal government actively protect their right to hold slaves. They were not talking about states' rights at this point. They were asking for a constitutional amendment giving people the right to own slaves, so that is stronger federal protection for slavery rather than states' rights. The fourth candidate was John Bell of Tennessee in the Constitutional Union Party. In the election of 1860, Lincoln won despite gathering only 39.8% of the popular vote in the most sectional election in history. He won big in the Electoral College, but did not get a single electoral vote in the South and often did not even appear on the ballots. Lincoln had won all northern states except for New Jersey and Missouri. Breckinridge had won all the deep southern states, plus Arkansas, North Carolina, Maryland, and Delaware. Bell won the border states of Virginia, Kentucky, and the middle slave state of Tennessee. Douglas only won Missouri and New Jersey, but finished second in popular votes. Regardless, South Carolina rejoiced at the returns. They now had their excuse for secession. And we have to ask ourselves, is secession a Southern overreaction? The South still had control of both houses of Congress. They had a 5-4 to four majority on the Supreme Court, and an anti-slavery amendment could have been defeated by one quarter of the states. Despite this, the planter class overreacted and pushed the Southern states to secede. Please advance to the next slide entitled debating secession. Lincoln's election convinced many Southerners that they would no longer have a voice in the federal government. Five and a half weeks after Lincoln's election, in December 1860, the South Carolina legislature seceded from the Union. In other Southern states, secession conventions were held and attended by secessionists or fire eaters, as well as cooperationists who desired some discussion before immediately pursuing this radical measure. Some states voted on whether or not to hold these conventions, like Arkansas, where 27,412 to 15,826 voters backed the convention by a bare majority. But at the Arkansas convention, unionists nominally dominated for the first part of the proceedings, and they elected a unionist candidate to head the proceedings. The first Arkansas Convention of Secession failed. This illustrates the fact that many Southerners did not favor secession at this point. There is another example of the initial split 
even within the Deep South. In Georgia, the first vote on secession did not contain a majority and was virtually split 166 to 130. This later changed 209 to 89, but this was due to politicking inside the convention, where many cooperationists were flipped by their secessionist counterparts against the will of their constituents. Another example is in Alabama, where secession was passed 61 to 39. None of these were put up to popular or direct elections, except for in one state, Virginia. But even that was a near-run thing, which we will talk about in a moment. The point to take away is that secession was never popular and was deeply divisive within every single southern state. Despite this, by February 1861, six more states had seceded. Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. Let us look at the Secession Convention documents to see what really motivated secession. For South Carolina, they used the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to make the arguments that states can govern themselves and dissolve a government if they believe it is not in their interest. This is just their pseudo-legal justification. Next, they specifically cite Article 4 of the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Clause, South Carolina claims that northern state laws, meaning northern states' rights, is violating the Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Law. They next argue that northern states have denounced slavery, that they have let abolitionists agitate against the institution, and they claim that northerners are inciting insurrection among slaves. Look at the paragraph that starts with, We affirm that these ends for which this government was instituted have been defeated. Look at the rest of the paragraph, and you will see that they are trying to protect slavery. Look at the next paragraph, which says, For 25 years, this agitation has been steadily increasing. Between those two paragraphs, you should have a good quote to use on your primary source analysis. Now, for Georgia, they specifically mention that they view the subsidies to manufacturing in the North as unfair since there is no economic support for slavery. They also say that that federal investment has helped the North and left the South behind. Remember, this is their perspective and does not mean it is entirely true. Next, Georgia makes the argument that the Northwest Ordinance was just, but that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional because it restricted slavery. They then argue that the North refuses to abide by the federal law of the Constitution to turn over fugitive slaves and those who help them. Lastly, they put a specific dollar amount on the institution of slavery, as well as the prevention of slaves as going into the territories in the last paragraph. So be sure to highlight those different aspects from South Carolina's point of view. For Mississippi, they state, quote, slavery was the greatest material interest, end quote, in the world. They believe it is good for civilization, and they defend slavery. For Texas, they explicitly say that African Americans are inferior, so be sure that you summarize those points, the similarities and differences between them, for your papers. Hopefully you can see that in every single one of those accounts, they specifically ask for stronger federal protection. They are not arguing states' rights, they are arguing over slavery. So if anyone ever tells you that slavery did not cause the Civil War, they are either ignorant or lying to you. Why did the Deep South secede first? That is where slavery was most widespread. Now, while all this is going on, 
James Buchanan is still president until March 1861, and Buchanan said slavery was illegal, and yet the federal government did nothing. In February 1861, delegates from the seven seceded states met in Montgomery, Alabama, where they formed the Confederate States of America. Please note that the Confederacy is not the same thing as the South. Several Southern states never joined the Confederacy, and numerous Southerners, white and black, served the Union. Regardless, the Confederates drew up a constitution very similar to the U.S. Constitution, except that it protected slavery, it prohibited tariffs, and it outlawed the international slave trade. Outlawing the international slave trade was not out of the goodness of their hearts, but to keep the price of slaves high. The Confederates elected the former Mississippi Senator and Secretary of War and Mexican War veteran Jefferson Davis as president. Please advance to the next slide entitled Divided South. At this point, eight slave states remained in the Union. The Upper South of Arkansas, Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina, and the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. It was only the Deep South states of South Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, and Georgia that seceded, and this should illustrate again that secession was not popular everywhere. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Compromise Averted. The Crittenden Amendments were the final attempt at compromise. It was proposed by Senator John J. Crittenden of Kentucky, heir to the political throne of Henry Clay. These amendments were designed to appease the South, and it contained the following provisions. First, slavery in the territories was prohibited north of the 3630 line, but was given full federal protection south of that line, existing or, quote, hereafter to be acquired, which meant Cuba. You see, no fewer than four times during the 1850s did Southerners propose annexing the island of Cuba to extend slavery there. And Crittenden's amendment is a nod to these efforts and shows that compromise would have taken Southern slavery into the Caribbean. The second part of the Crittenden amendments said that popular sovereignty would reign for future states. But this idea was rejected by Lincoln, and now all hope of compromise was gone. Lincoln saw himself as elected on the principle of the non-extension of slavery and knew that his party would be destroyed if he gave in on that point and he also did not want to see slavery extended into the Caribbean. There was one last mad scheme proposed by Lincoln's Secretary of State, William H. Seward, to bring about a resolution to the crisis, which historians call the Foreign War Panacea. Someone reported that Seward once said, quote, If the Lord would only give the United States an excuse for a war with England, France, or Spain, that would be the best means of reestablishing internal peace. End quote. Seward believed that the only way to get the country back together was to declare war on a European nation in order to excite American passions and forget about domestic quarrels. He did this because he believed there were many Unionists in the South. But Lincoln did not accept this policy's suggestion, but is an interesting idea and shows the numerous options that politicians in D.C. were considering to avert a civil war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Lincoln's First Inaugural Address. One of the greatest presidential speeches ever was done on March 1861 when Lincoln gave his first inaugural address. Among other comments, he said, quote, 
I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. He then talked directly to the South. Quote, in your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without yourselves being the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. Then he tried to reconcile. Quote, we are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell with the chorus of union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. End quote. Lincoln's reference to the mystic chords of memory is his way of reminding the seceded states that they were Americans and that they should reconcile. Now let's compare this speech against Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech. On March 21st, 1861, Stevens declared, quote, The new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution of African slavery as it exists among us as the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture in present revolution. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. He's referring to Thomas Jefferson's All Men Are Created Equal. He says, quote, Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This our new government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. End quote. So that is the sitting vice president of the Confederacy telling you all that they seceded over slavery. Between his speech and the Secession Convention documents, I have amply proven that it was not states' rights, but slavery that caused the Civil War. And again, anyone who says otherwise is either ignorant or lying to you. Historian W.C. Davis once wrote, quote, To the old Union, they had said the federal power had no authority to interfere with slavery issues in a state. To their new nation, they would declare that the state had no power to interfere with federal protections of slavery. Of all the many testimonials to the fact that slavery and not states' rights really lay at the heart of the government, this was the most eloquent of all. In fact, the states' rights defense of secession in 1860 and 61 did not appear in force until after 1865 as builders of the lost cause myth sought to distance themselves from slavery. End quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled, So Civil War is Inaugurated at Last. While Lincoln said he did not want conflict, he did want Southerners to remember they were Americans, and he also wanted to keep the American flag flying there. He was not going to roll over like Buchanan. So he told U.S. postmasters to keep operating until the Confederates told them to leave, and he instructed federal judges to do the same thing. Most important, he wanted to maintain control of at least one U.S. fort in the seceded states. By the time of his inauguration, the Union could only control four forts. 
This is because Southerners had begun the process of sequestration, or the confiscation of federal property like money, equipment, arsenals, and even the private property of Northerners and Northern businesses all over the South. And this will greatly anger Northerners. I would like to make a note here. Isn't it funny how the Confederacy is founded to protect slave property, yet the first thing they do is confiscate Northern property, paid predominantly by Northern tax dollars? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is hypocrisy. By April 1861, all forts, except for Fort Sumter in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina, and Fort Pickens at Pensacola, Florida, had been taken by the Confederates. The war could have actually started earlier, like on January 9, 1861, when the U.S. ship, the Star of the West, was fired upon by South Carolinian batteries as it tried to resupply the garrison at Fort Sumter. Since it wasn't damaged... Lincoln decided to ignore this provocation, and what you should see is South Carolina is purposely trying to start a war to get the rest of the South in on their side. Well, now it's April, two months have gone by since the formation of the Confederacy, and the Upper South seems no closer to secession. So South Carolina is going to force the issue before the rest of the South gets cold feet. They issue an ultimatum to the commander of Fort Sumter, Colonel Anderson, they demanded that he evacuate the fort by April 12, 1861 at 4.30 in the morning, or else they would open fire. I'm going to link a quick clip from the Ken Burns Civil War series where Mary Chestnut describes that morning as she anticipated the attack. Okay, you gone and watched it? Good. The point is that on April 12, 1861, the Civil War began when South Carolinian forces bombarded Fort Sumter for 36 hours straight before the garrison finally capitulated. Miraculously, there were no casualties. But the gauntlet had been thrown down, and the war finally came. Following the Battle of Fort Sumter, Lincoln declared the Confederate states to be in rebellion, and he called on the governors of each state to supply 75,000 volunteers for 90 days of service to put down the rebellion he also called for a blockade of southern ports. Lincoln thought he had the loyalty of the Upper South, but as we see, this will be a mistake. Upon hearing the news of the attack, a New York lawyer, George Templeton Strong, said, quote, So civil war is inaugurated at last. God defend the right. End quote. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Confederacy. In response to his call for troops, the four states of the Upper South seceded, upping the number of Confederate states to 11 total. As Southerners, they could not bring themselves to go to war with other Southern states. Lincoln's call for volunteers had been the breaking point. But again, this was not a popular process. The Virginia Convention passed the Ordinance 88-55, to which is not a majority. And when the Ordinance was put up to a popular referendum, the only state to do so it passed 128,884 votes to 32,134 votes. But miraculously, many of the Unionist counties of Western Virginia were mysteriously lost. Go figure. Also, many of these votes were done aloud and in public with armed militia watching. And that is a great deal of intimidation. If you declare your sympathies as a Unionist, you will be persecuted. 
In the end, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia joined the Confederacy. And the Upper South's secession was crucial for the Confederacy, because it doubled the white population, and it contained most of the railroads and industry. After Virginia seceded, the capital was moved to Richmond. But not all Confederates, and not all Virginians, were happy with this. West Virginians ultimately seceded from Virginia and formed the independent state of West Virginia in 1863. They did this because they disliked having their votes ignored, and the fact that Virginia made a new constitution which taxed their land and cattle at a higher rate than slave owners' land and enslaved people. Can you imagine that? Your cow being taxed higher than a slave. This is what we call unequal taxation in the elite gaming the system. Really never goes away. You should note that the border states never officially seceded, though they were intensely divided. Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland sent troops to both sides of the conflict. In Missouri and Kentucky, for example, sent representatives to the Confederate Congress, though the actual states remained in the Union. All of these states were ravaged by what we call the Other War, or guerrilla conflict, among Southerners. Lastly, there were many Southerners who did not support the Confederacy. The four million enslaved African Americans, and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of white Unionists. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, And the War Came. Fort Sumter was the official beginning of the conflict. The two sides that were fighting was the United States, also called the Union or the Federals, and the soldiers were called Bluecoats, Yankees, or Billy Yank. The other side was the Confederacy. Their official uniforms were gray, but they could also wear a type of butternut brown. The Confederacy was almost always short on supplies, and sometimes Southern troops would wear the Yankee blue. Southern troops were called Secesh, Rebels, or Johnny Reb. But the one thing to take away is neither side was prepared for the unprecedented bloodshed that their country would suffer through. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.